This is an Area Code podcast. Welcome to Wildwood Flower, stories of women who built country music. I'm Jack Peterson, a lifelong music fan and country music outsider. Check out my earlier episodes on Samantha Bumgarner and Lottie Kimbrough to get a fuller story of the landscape of women in American music in the 1920s, if you haven't already. Peace up, Peace A-Town. Up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. talk a little bit about the Atlanta music scene. Before there was Lil Nas X, before there was Killer Mike or Usher or TLC or Outkast, before the Indigo Girls or Cat Power, before Gladys Knight or Ray Charles, before any of these people and before Nashville carved out space as the center of country music, Atlanta was the default music capital of the South. One of the heralded features of the Atlanta music scene in the early 1900s was the Georgia Old Time Fiddlers Convention. Starting in 1913, the convention attracted fiddlers from the textile mills of the city and the surrounding mountains and towns for a long weekend of fiddling. Not just any kind of fiddling. Fiddling of old-time music. And what was old-time music? Well, if you were a fiddler at that time, it would be the music your parents and grandparents might know. Here's how a newspaper promotion of one of the conventions described it. There will be no classic music on the program. Indeed, half the numbers to be played never have been written or printed. They have been handed down from father to son for generations, played by ear, memory, and main strength and awkwardness. An Atlanta Journal writer promised that the convention would cause its attendees to feel the thrill of forest throats and mountain wind, and to hear the whisperings of April voices in the leaves, or raindrops dripping from the eaves of some lone cabin in the hill. Another convention enthusiast, apparently overcome by a wave of nostalgia, described the scene in which every one of the several dozen fiddlers carried the feel of the old red hills of Georgia and the little old cabin with the golden corn swaying in the wind across the patch and the sour mash still bubbling out its distilled sunshine just over the brow of the hill where the revenuers haven't looked yet. Shut your eyes and forget you are in Atlanta's big auditorium. You can see the rafters of the old barn and smell the hay up in the mow and almost hear the lowing of the cattle and the rustle of the hen who complains about her disturbed nest. You can hear the callers swing your partners, all hands round, choose the lady you like best. You remember the girls in the print calico, yes, bare feet some of them, the dears, and the uneven floor that used to ring like a sounding board to the high-steppin' snorters. Yes, this is the kind of nostalgia that we might expect from something that bills itself as old time. Nothing wrong with a little nostalgia, nothing wrong with music being handed down from father to son. Was it exclusionary to women? No, not really, though men were in the vast majority. There were, however, a few women participants, and there were even some who won prizes. In 1916, 14-year-old Louise Hall won the $30 second prize. 
1920, Anita Sorrells wins second place at the age of 15, going on to win another second place prize and two first place prizes in 1931 and 1934. Rosalie Carson, whom we'll talk about in our next episode, began playing the conventions as early as 1924. There is, however, a story from 1929 when the secretary of the Fiddlers Association, Professor Alex Smart, it sounds like I made up that name, but I didn't, became concerned about the increase in women applicants. Sparked by the application of one Miss Amelia Wells, Smart writes, Personally, I have no objections. Looks like the women are running the men out of every kind of job, from driving cars to flying. But up in the mountain regions, where most of our fiddlers come from, they have always figured that the place for a woman is in the cabin, doing the cooking and looking after the children, with some plowing and hoeing in season. And they certainly are not used to women fiddlers. I reckon we'll have to take a vote on it. He is outvoted, and Amelia Smart is allowed to enter, and inclusion of women seems to not be an issue again. No, they were not underrepresented. It's not women who were excluded from the Georgia Old Time Fiddlers Convention. Let's look a little more about what's behind these old time fiddling conventions, and not just the one in Atlanta. And for that, we'll look to who else but Henry Ford. Henry Ford started his own fiddling conventions in Michigan as a way to stem the tide of jazz music that was taking over the nation. Ford abhorred jazz. He abhorred the dancing. He abhorred the urbanism of it all. If this sounds like thinly veiled white supremacy, well, Ford's veil was actually non-existent, and his white supremacy was driven by anti-Semitism. He thought that jazz was a Jewish invention that would corrupt Americans with alcohol, sex, and dancing. To keep the tide at bay, he invested in teaching people to square dance, and he wanted old-time fiddle music to be the soundtrack for these square dances. He published a book of dances in 1926 called Good Morning. After a sleep of 25 years, old-fashioned dancing is being revived by Mr. and Mrs. Henry Ford. I'll say the title of that book one more time, and remember, this is the title of a book. Good morning. After a sleep of 25 years, old-fashioned dancing is being revived by Mr. and Mrs. Henry Ford. He hired square dance teachers to teach his executives and employees, and required his employees to attend square dancing events. He funded fiddling conventions to get people interested in these old ways again. In typical Ford style, he sought to standardize the revival. He brought 39 fiddlers to Dearborn, Michigan to make sure there was an agreed-upon repertoire of old-time songs that would soundtrack the square dance revolution. Keep in mind, many of these old-time fiddle songs were by no means devoid of alcohol, sex, or the type of dancing that Ford abhorred. The standardization of old-time fiddle music would require turning a blind eye to these more unseemly aspects of fiddle tunes, as well as to the lives of some of these champion fiddlers. The Georgia Old Time Fiddlers Convention was not funded by Henry Ford, as far as anyone can tell, but it still carried some of Ford's sentiments. Author Peter LaChapelle says that one of the aims of the Georgia Old Time Fiddlers Convention was to repel racial mixing and racial degeneracy. In other words, to support the white supremacist aims of the Jim Crow era. Never mind the long African-American tradition of string band music, from the days of slavery through today. Never mind that black enslaved people were often the best fiddlers in their respective areas, and black string bands often played for dances. In fact, Henry Ford's precious square dances have black roots as well. 
So it comes as no surprise that the fiddling conventions in Jim Crow Atlanta prohibited black people from performing. It's not that only white people were playing the fiddle, either. The South has a long tradition of black and Native American string bands. Here's a clip of an early recording of Choctaw musicians, Big Chief Henry's Indian String Band. fiddling conventions in the South that would allow black contestants, these contestants had to perform in a separate category from white fiddlers, while Creek and Cherokee fiddlers could compete in the same category as whites. One of the fiddlers who frequented the Georgia Old Time Fiddlers Convention was Atlanta resident Rob Stanley. Rob Stanley had a daughter, and it's this fiddler's daughter we're here to talk about today. Let's talk about Roba Stanley of Atlanta, Georgia. Roba Stanley's story and her place as one of country music's first recording stars was nearly lost to history. After recording for OK Records in 1924, three months after Samantha Bumgarner's Columbia Sessions and nearly half a year after Lottie Kimbrough's first Paramount recordings, Roba moves from her Atlanta home to Florida and stops making music altogether. She's forgotten by country music fans and assumed dead until a scholar named Charles Wolfe found her alive and well in Gainesville, Florida in the 1970s. Wolfe and a colleague conduct several interviews and the story of this country music pioneer could finally reach a broad audience. Like we said, in the early 1900s, Atlanta is the mecca of string band music, hosting the Georgia Old Time Fiddlers Convention, where seven-time champion fiddler of Georgia, Fiddlin' John Carson, rose to prominence. Carson's recording of the minstrel's song, Little Old Log Cabin in the Lane, is considered by many to be the first commercial country music recording. But the only friend that's left there is that old dog of mine And the little old old cabin in the lane Roba Stanley's father, Rob, wins the top prize at the convention in 1920 and was also friends with Fiddle and John. Fiddle and John and other Atlanta musicians are frequent guests at the Stanley House in Gwinnett County. No doubt, this provides a rich musical education to young Roba, who begins performing local square dances and events with her father, backing his fiddling with her guitar. Of this time, Roba says, I know I was the only girl playing. At least I don't remember seeing any more girls. However, in another interview, she remembers running in the same circles as Moonshine Kate, whom we'll discuss in the next episode. Roba and her father begin performing at election events for Sam Brown, who was running for Congress from Georgia's 9th District. At one of these events, the Stanleys are recruited by a furniture store magnate, Mr. Polk, to perform on his radio show, hosted by Atlanta's WSB in 1924. As a result, Roba increases in popularity, and Mr. Polk, needing some records to sell at his stores along with his Victrola machines, pressures the Victrola Recording Company to cut some sides through OK with the Stanleys. 
While this series of events was fortuitous for the Stanleys, poor Sam Brown didn't fare so well. He loses the election and takes his own life in shame. In total, beginning at the age of only 14, Roba records nine sides with OK in 1924 and 1925, with Ralph Peer producing. Peer, who would later oversee the first recordings of Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family, stands as a significant figure in country music history. For more on Peer, check out the Lottie Kimbrough episode. Here's one of Roba Stanley's first recordings, Woe Mule. In a previous episode, we looked at Samantha Bumgarner and Eva Davis's records with Columbia, considered to be the first country music recordings by women. Robo's recordings stand apart from Bumgarner and Davis's in two significant ways. The Bumgarner and Davis sessions primarily featured the instruments, banjo and fiddle, with the vocals seeming incidental, though no less powerful. A couple of Bumgarner and Davis's tunes simply featured Bumgarner yelling out square dance calls. Roba Stanley's records placed the vocals and lyrics at the forefront. A second way that Roba Stanley's records differ is how she establishes herself as a songwriter. Bumgarner and Davis performed traditional and popular songs. We know that Bumgarner wrote and performed originals, but they, to my knowledge, were never recorded for commercial use. Roba takes traditional songs and localizes them, or writes entirely new lyrics for traditional tunes. What listeners are hearing on Roba Stanley records are a young woman putting her own voice and experience into traditional forms. One of her sides is Little Frankie, a traditional song which has been recorded hundreds of times over the years as Frankie and Johnny, from everyone from Jimmy Rogers to Bob Dylan to Stevie Wonder to even Lindsay Lohan. Frankie woke up one morning, he had all over bark. I'll bet you I have Honda surroundings in the dark. He's my man, but he's done me wrong. Frankie went to the bar room. The song is about Frankie and Johnny, who are sweethearts. Frankie finds out that Johnny is cheating on her and shoots him for doing her wrong. Most versions end with Frankie being punished for killing her man, either by imprisonment or by execution. Here's the last line of Texas Ruby's version of the song, put out in 1940. Also consider this a plug for the forthcoming Texas Ruby episode when we finally get into the 1940s. I'll bring round a thousand policemen, bring them around today, and lock me in that dungeon cell and throw that key away. I shot my man just for doing me wrong. Now the story has no moral, the story has no end. The story only goes to show that there ain't no good in men. I shot my man 
just for doing me wrong, like they always do. Frankie gets thrown into the dungeon. Here's how Roba Stanley's version ends. A rubber tie buggy and a double-seated hag Cat pull a lamb to the graveyard and brought little Frankie back He's my man, but he's dead and gone When they try little Frankie, they place her on the stand Said Frankie, you free woman, go kill you another man And there she stands, a raging sand Frankie is free to kill another man. Pretty strong statement from an artist who would later be called the first sweetheart of country music. Roba also wrote local references into her music. Here's her version of Railroad Bill, which places the action in Decula, Georgia. Roba Stanley cuts all night long in January 1925. As you might guess, it has a bit of sexual innuendo, but it also makes an attempt at bridging some societal divides according to race and class. A rich gal sleeps on a feather bed and a poor gal does the same. But the cold black gal on a towel on the floor but sleeping just the same all night long, all night long. So it's cringy, we all sleep in different places, but we all sleep. Not very sophisticated. It gets worse and explicitly racist as the song goes on. The same can be said for some of other Roba Stanley songs. I'm not going to play them here, but I'm not avoiding them. I don't have enough specific information about Roba Stanley to do justice to issues of race in these early recordings. We know about the segregated fiddling conventions. We know about Jim Crow practices in Atlanta at this time. Anything I'd say about Roba Stanley's views on white supremacy would be speculation. We'll continue to explore these larger contextual themes in other episodes. Perhaps the most significant and original of Roba's recordings is Single Life. Aside from a few borrowed lines and melody, this appears to be an original composition of Roba's a 14-year-old living in a society that does not provide many opportunities for women outside of domestic roles. Of her songwriting process, Stanley says, I made up a lot of this, but to tell which one or what, I'd take me a piece of paper and write and get things to rhyme. I'd hear a few lines somewhere else, and then I'd add to it and make them like that. Here's the last bit of Single Life. Single life is a happy life, single life is lovely. I am single and no man's wife, no man's child, I'm lonely. Boy, keep away from the gal that's playing, give them plenty of breath. Sorry, she's way they'll paint, tell dead with a ball and it ends on the breath. Single life. 
Ironically, Robo's career ends in 1925 when she meets a boy, I don't know the color of his hair, marries and moves to Miami. Robo says, I just quit everything and got married. My parents were a little concerned about how young I was, but they liked Mr. Baldwin a lot. In Florida, Roba quits playing music. She says, My husband didn't like for me to play out in public much. There was no way to keep recording. They were way up there in Georgia, and I was in Miami, and lucky to get home once a year. They kept playing, but when I left, it almost broke things up. I carried my guitar with me, but I played very, very little, and in just two or three months, I wasn't playing at all. In one account, she gives her guitar away to her nephews. In another account, the guitar remained in the attic of her parents' Georgia home until it was given away, along with other old items, years later. Roba dedicates herself to her children, and her musical legacy falls into obscurity until her rediscovery by Charles Wolfe in the mid-1970s, which regains her some notoriety and acclaim. By her own admission, it wasn't just that her music was forgotten by the world, she even forgot that she had played, until Wolf called her up. Once in her later years, she visits her grandson in Middle Tennessee and takes in a show at the Grand Old Opry. Here, she is saluted from the stage for her contributions to country music. No doubt a meaningful moment for Roba. Roba Stanley passes away in 1986. The impact of her early recordings is unknowable. Go and listen and be inspired. When I was young and in my prime, thought I never would marry. Fell in love with a pretty little girl, and it's enough, we got married. A ring, come a ding, come a dairy. Prettiest girl that ever I saw, a name of devilish Mary. We're both young and foolish, got in a powerful hurry. We both agreed upon one word in the wedding day. But Thursday, a ring, jimmy ding, jimmy dairy. Prettiest girl that ever I saw, a name of devilish Mary. Thank you for listening to Wildwood Flower. References for this episode can be found in the show notes, as well as a playlist of songs that were featured. Also in the show notes are deadlines for musicians who want to submit cover songs to be featured on a future episode. Take a look, send me your songs, I'll put them on the podcast. Next episode, Moonshine Caked.